Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Shame is complicated, yet the results of it can be fairly simple. I started this recording wanting to talk about service because service is also powerful and it's also complicated. Some people think of it as work or toil or boring, whereas other people will think of it as sexy or they'll think of it as love or they'll think of it as feeding or they'll think of it as satisfying. For some people, service makes them feel better about themselves. Other people, not so much. Shame often leads to a reduction in self-worth, and worth is very hard to foster. I think coping with worthlessness is part of what makes shame so complicated. Self-care isn't obvious to many people, so when you start talking about service, and shame enters the picture, and you start talking about coping and self-care, but self-care doesn't seem too clear, I often use my own life as a touchstone and think about my journey to understanding self-care, and that journey began with what's called compassionate communication or nonviolent communication, NVC for short. It's essentially a framework for thinking about what I needed and what other people might need and trying to process and understand the requests of others in terms of needs that can have tangible actions and then asking someone for help and support, both in trying to understand what they need and what they want from your interactions, but also asking, what is it that I need? What is it that I need right now, alone in this room? How can I get my needs met? How can I feel more whole, feel more comfortable, feel more like the screaming match of what life feels like sometimes? That that intensity, that that anxiety, that that chaos can actually calm down sometimes, give you space to breathe, give you space to love yourself. That's what I wanted to talk about, service and shame. But that journey begins by talking about NVC. So today, I'm going to introduce you to Sia, and we're going to talk about NVC. And Sia and I are going to have more sessions in future, and hopefully we'll get to some of the really juicy, interesting topics that I want to talk about. I hope you find what I have to say, at the very least interesting, if not useful. I hope Sia does too. That was Daniel Birch's Maybe Someday I'll Wake Up. You probably noticed something felt different about that introduction, and that's because I'm starting to practice more courage and authentically express more that I want to be saying, rather than just what I get a chance to say. I'm excited to see what I can do with the first two to five minutes of my podcast, if people are expecting an introduction to material and they've tolerated listening to me drone on thus far, 
maybe maybe I can shut up and say something, make this auditory space special, make these two minutes, not two minutes you wait to get through, but two minutes you look forward to, maybe a window into my creative process or a window into how I'm doing or just catching up about my life. I know that sounds really silly. No, that's probably insecurity. I'm probably just worried about what people will think about me if I make catching up about my life part of a podcast that's ultimately about an exploration of intimacy. And yet what's so strange about that to me is that it's incredibly intimate material. I guess asking the question, why is it that I think people don't want to hear my voice is an important question for me to be asking. But that's a question for another day. Now it's time to listen to Sia talk about compassionate communication and maybe even touch on service a little. I recorded my pre-interview with Sia with her consent and present it for you here so you can get some insight more into my creative process and how I produce this podcast. Enjoy. What is your relationship with service? With service? Yeah. I'll need you to elaborate that because I don't know what you mean. So when I say service, I mean the types of things you probably associate with just like a loving relationship, the things you do for someone else that are not directly for your needs. Okay. For example, if there was like a specific thing you really like doing with a partner, like going to see a movie or a certain kind of sex, and you really enjoy doing that for you, Mm -hmm. and she enjoyed doing that for her, the two of you, we should do this on the podcast, (laughs) uh, but the two of you could do that activity Mm -hmm. at the same time, and you would both be getting like direct needs met. Right. Whereas if she was like, I really want you to do this thing for me, like, could you just help me move, or could you just do this thing or that thing? Um, There's this interesting thing where some of us get needs met when other people are getting needs met. Right. Sort of like when you get someone off or when you um, help someone with something and you're really helpful in their mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And it it can do a few things. It can distract us from our own issues, but it can also um, provide us with a really genuine self sense of being helpful. Right. And that can be really positive for self-esteem temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but service needs can be like their own thing and there are really healthy ways for them to manifest for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my question about how your relationship's impacted by service was more like, or or sorry, what is your relationship with service is more like, How do you relate with those needs? How do you usually get them met? And like, what does that look like for you? And and how do you feel getting those needs met? Mm -hmm. It would be like that cluster of questions that I was kind of going towards. Okay. There's a lot of undiscovered, um, interesting stuff, I think, around service Mm -hmm. that I think will be like highly beneficial as a piece for you to talk about. Right. Um, And also it'll be really good content, I think. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're always like, if you're just like burn the recording, I'll just burn the recording. So that's totally fine too. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's just a conversation, and then hopefully it's a conversation that we can both be really happy with. Mm-hmm. I can always give you a print of the of the conversation before it gets published. You can listen to the whole thing, sure, just to help with anxiety because yeah. I know I know how that is with publishing. <laughs> yeah, so essentially, what we'll what we'll start touching on is a needs based framework. Okay. So we'll start talking about um, how needs we have in relationships. Mm-hmm. Communication needs inventory. I think for me, that's kind of an important question because I'm not that self-aware and I don't really. We can totally do a nonviolent communication like (laughs) journey and talk about nonviolent communication. Yeah. And I don't really understand like particularly what I need from someone. That's fucking awesome. Oh my God. So (laughs) yes, but also 
I may or may not be able to help you at all with that, <laughs> but I think it'll be really fun to talk about it because they're going to be, you're not the only person with this problem. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to, not that it's a problem, but you're not the only person that has this experience of life and intimacy. Yeah. And it's really useful to talk about where we are when stuff isn't working, just mm-hmm. as it is to talk about where we are when things are working. Yeah. Like me going on a podcast and saying, I went and played with two people in a BDSM context this weekend and had really intimate scenes with both of them Mm -hmm. and no one killed anyone. (laughs) And all in all, people left that experience with some negative feelings and everyone was able to process through their negative feelings, Mm -hmm. like effectively and like healthily. And like we had good conversations and like I got to have just really hot, amazing scenes with two different people Mm -hmm. and that they were able to do that in a healthy context. Mm -hmm. Like to me, looking at that is next to nuts. Like it is completely a tour de force of Mm -hmm. self-awareness of emotional Mm -hmm. processing of communication like it is it is doing relationship skills at like a Cirque du Soleil acrobatic level I completely agree like right that's like I yeah I probably wouldn't have the grace to (laughs) go through all of that and be like not have have really freaked out or like right now perhaps and not that I'm in any way saying that you ever want to be non-monogamous but the point I'm making is like that level of relationship skills doesn't present every time you run into a problem in non-monogamy right right you're gonna have non-monogamous situations where you don't have that level of grace mm-hmm. um where it can be like <laughs> super challenging and you're like oh god why um, <laughs> well I, I mean and that even too like, that can depend on even just where you're at in your life you know yeah. like because you may handle something really well one day but then yeah. something tr- like went bad for you the next day and you didn't handle it because of all your other crap that's going on Totally. So it, it just a million different things, mm-hmm. right? A million different things. What I think is interesting though, is that that isn't super interesting or useful for a lot of folks that are not non-monogamous. Right. So like having that <clears throat> content up is one thing, but it can almost come across as gloating. Mm. Like it can come across as like, okay, but how is this useful? How did you do that? Right. Um, and sometimes it's easy to forget the basic mm-hmm. sort of skills that I've worked on really hard for the better part of like one and a half decades yeah <laughs> right it's like yeah. it's it's easy to forget all the work that went into that no definitely and that yeah i i think that a lot of people could be- benefit from that type of work and i mean that's even what i encourage my clients to do because i mm-hmm. i have the domestic violence caseload right now mm-hmm. and it's all about relationships and trying to manage the emotion your emotions and all of that and it's just, yeah mm-hmm. so a lot of people could benefit but it's challenging do you want to jump into session and just like continue recording sure awesome let's do it okay <laughs> Awesome. Um, well, I guess I should welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Sia, because that's the name we're using for you today. Woohoo. I will put your initials here, um, so I don't forget who Sia is, because I'll be like, Sia, who's that? <laughs> we just made that up. Um, you work in community corrections, you identify as lesbian, and monogamous, and not kinky, and you grew up in Vancouver. This is all <clears> true. And all of those are uncommon things for my podcast. <laughs> okay. Right. So we were just talking about nonviolent communication. And I thought this is a great time to segue into talking about needs. So I thought that might be really fun. Are you excited? So excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we're talking about self-care yes. and needs really play into self-care. If you don't know what your needs are or don't have a good idea for like a needs framework, it can be really hard to be like, what needs do I need more with? Right. Right. Like what needs do I need to be more filled in? Right. Essentially. And how, how do I feel that? Totally. Which yeah. is like a whole second question. <laughs> right. So many questions. So many questions. So are you, so you, have you read, you haven't read nonviolent communication? No. Amazing. This is going to be great then. Cause I, I like how I'm, I'm, have you, do you watch Rick and Morty at all? No, I don't. There, there's a character, um, 
what what is his name? Revolius Clockwork the the third or something. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm not actually sure. He goes by well, he doesn't go by. People derogatorily call him like Gearhead. Oh. Um, which okay. he explains is essentially super racist, but Oh my gosh. Um, which is understandable. He's like, I come from a whole line of clock people. Anyways, one thing he says um, is he's extremely boring as a character and he always talks about gear wars okay. and how like it was a big part of his cultural heritage and history and like nobody really wants to listen to him talk about gear wars because they're already <laughs> bored when he starts talking. Oh no. Um, but the funny thing about it is at one point Rick pawns him off on Morty, one of the other characters, and it's just like, um, he's like, do you know anything about gear wars? And Morty is like, no, I, I know nothing about gear wars. And he's like, I am like excited for you to discover this material. And that's basically where I am. Yeah. No, awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm always open to learning new things. That was a very roundabout explanation of how excited that's I was okay. about That's <laughs> okay. I appreciate roundabout explanations. Awesome. Okay. So TLDR, um, Marshall Rosenberg, created this framework called nonviolent communication, which is now called compassionate communication. But some people still call it NVC, which is short for nonviolent communication. Right. Um, it wasn't super well named originally because when people think nonviolent communication, they think like literally every form of communication that doesn't involve physical violence. Right. But there are a lot of ways to project or to imply other people mean something with their actions than mm -hmm. maybe they do. It's really easy to look at someone's actions and be like, that was a really shitty thing to do, or that was a very unloving thing to do, or that was a very... Um... It's, it's funny. I'm like struggling to find ways of projecting feelings onto people because... At, at like the the worst way that I would explain that is saying that was a very unkind thing to do. Okay. And and even that is like not necessarily implying a feeling, but even saying like, well, if you had loved me, then you would have. There you go. Uh, There's a really good like abusive structure. Is yes. The, is the whole if you loved me, if you really loved me, then mm -hmm. um, that whole structure of sentence is like ah, <laughs> like it kind of sends me screaming out of the room. Yeah. Making a Victor shaped hole in the nearest wall. <laughs> Well, it's such a guilt trip. Oh, if if you love me, then yeah, and then it then you're calling into question yeah. that person's feelings and who can you why can you like who are you to define that for them? Totally, it's like it's not holding the relationship hostage, but it's very close because mm -hmm. you're 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 holding their commitment hostage in the relationship, or you're holding their um, their feelings hostage. You're saying like I'm not allowing you to have these to claim you have these feelings unless you demonstrate it. Well, and then it's like you're forcing the person to then prove that that they do love you. And I don't think that's necessarily healthy. Sure. Especially if you're like trying to leverage it for a certain thing. And just to be really, really clear, this isn't something I talk to your partner about. Mm -hmm. So I'm not like, this is in no way meant to be passive aggressive. I'm not even sure if this is a thing that either of you have done in your, in your former relationship. Right. Um, I just wanted to clarify that because as I was saying it, I was like, I really hope I'm not getting into territory where like the two of you have like had a fight at some point about this. And this comes across as like <laughs> super pointed or <laughs> shitty. No, no, okay, don't worry wonderful. about that. Yeah. I'm so glad to you're all that. good. Awesome. Um, right. So there's like all of these structures where we can like apply, imply other people are like thinking things or feeling things. And ultimately we're the experts of our own internal experience. Mm -hmm. I've certainly said or done things where I didn't imply or, or sorry, where I didn't mean for it to imply yes. what it did. Right. And then suddenly another person's really hurt or upset or just miserable. Like yeah. people can really go to bad places when they think we're doing something really horrific. That you maybe don't intend to, but absolutely. It, it, that's all about communication right you can say something and the other person can completely misinterpret what you've said totally it's communication is very much a two-way process mm -hmm. and and everyone has some responsibility there mm -hmm. i think what's neat about nvc is its ability to frame things in a very personal responsibility 
um, heavy fashion. Right. The the sense of personal <laughs> responsibility that you get when quote unquote using NVC properly, whatever mm-hmm. that means. Um, even though we're going to define what that means later, um, <laughs> I'm I'm just I'm not a one true way human, and I and I think this framework has its limitations, mm-hmm. especially when it starts getting used as a weapon, and that's a thing that that is one pitfall with NVC, and I think it's the reason it hasn't taken over as like the dominant thing that everyone right. does, and that's because there is a way to use words like feeling to imply things or project on other people in a way that NVC like issues. Mm. It is like, please do not do these things. Um, so for, it's typically a four-step process, which I don't have in front of me. So I'm almost certainly going to screw it up. (laughs) Almost certainly. (laughs) Almost certainly. But it begins with, um, making factual or empirical observations. So instead of saying like, I can see you're really pissed off right now, um, because a person's yelling, Mm -hmm. that might seem like a no brainer for most people. And it might seem like shorthand, but it's more of a best practice to say like, I'm noticing you're red in the face and I'm noticing your voice is a lot louder than it used to be. And I'm noticing you're standing up and you're kind of bending over towards me. And like, since I'm seated, like I'm actually feeling a little bit uncomfortable right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just like uncertain of like what your intentions are. And it would be really nice if you could just give me some reassurance or um, I would maybe even make the request for you to just like maybe sit back down and we could just have more of a calm conversation because this is really like, um, like a lot of anxiety is coming up Mm -hmm. in me right now. And like, this is a really hard conversation for me to be in. Mm -hmm. So I just really, I really want to be on your team on this one. And I would love if you could just like sit down and we could just have a conversation about it that doesn't have those things in it. That's funny you mentioned that because, uh, that's kind of a technique that we use at work. If someone's getting really aggressive and escalated is to point out what what they're doing and how it's making you feel and often if you tell someone that you know it's making you uncomfortable or that you're feeling unsafe they'll calm right down because that they're often i find they're not mad at you sure like they're not mad at me for doing my role they're mad at the situation that they're in you're sure so if you tell someone i'm feeling uncomfortable they'll usually calm down Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's kind of interesting it's it's yeah it's useful in the personal life as well yeah i don't know if i don't necessarily have that skill in my personal life because of course if when if a client's yelling at me i'm not emotionally involved right right but if a partner's yelling at me well usually there's something that's happened to cause that person right right those feelings and often it involves me as well so i i'm not the greatest at using it in my personal life which is something i could learn from so i guess it's more of like a professional detachment thing yeah and i mean it's it's easier to be in that mind frame when you're at work and mm-hmm. you, and you're not connected to the person. Yeah, that's totally understandable. So it's almost like being able to like pace yourself through your feelings and mm-hmm. like breathe, essentially have space to breathe while you're feeling your feelings and thinking your thoughts. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and sort of knowing to take that step back. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, especially I know for myself, um, being in an argument, I can, it can get quite heated yeah. um, and I can escalate quite quickly. Yeah. And so, yeah, knowing to take that step back and and have a breath, I think is uh, first first step number one. (laughs) Yeah. And and those feelings come from somewhere. Like they definitely come from wherever they, wherever, like, I don't want to say in your case, because obviously like, I don't know you and (laughs) I'm not a counselor (laughs) and like, I'm not, like, these aren't skills I necessarily have. Right. Um, But, but those feelings do come from somewhere. And of course, and a lot of the time I find that anger for me um, comes up from, I think a place of protection. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing I struggle with in expressing anger, because I have kind of the opposite problem, which is that I just tend not to express anger right. unless I'm expressing a lot of anger. And typically at that point, I'm like so far gone. Mm-hmm. I'm like 
not having a panic attack necessarily that that's not the same thing but like intense emotion it's it's usually such intense overwhelm mm-hmm. that i'm unable to process my feelings ah and so that can happen for me right. so i think sometimes it comes for me from a place of overwhelm and sometimes it it comes for me from a place of hurt right so if both of those happen at the same time yeah it's really reasonable for you to be super un like unable to to man like that's the whole yeah to regulate yourself yeah. and you know maybe say things that you should say yeah um rather than what you mean spewing out you know the first thing that comes to your mind that could be potentially really hurtful yeah and just make the situation so much worse yeah especially if that was like um a coping strategy that was modeled for you as a kid right if your parents just said hurtful things to each other instead mm-hmm. of like like pacing themselves through it and and calmly hearing what the other person had to say this is like the idyllic parent situation i'm yeah. describing i don't think anyone had those parents <laughs> probably not mine certainly weren't no no mine either yeah mine were definitely the yelly kind mm-hmm. and uh in in some rare cases the throw dishes kind oh gosh yeah that's intense yeah my mom was a very intense human being for mm-hmm. sure yeah i i love my mom I sometimes struggle with my relationship with my mom, mm-hmm. which is good because it used to be that I struggled all the time with my relationship with my mom. So it's improved. So it's so that I sometimes struggle isn't isn't like an indictment. If anything, it's like a celebration mm-hmm. that we are able to have a relationship at all. Well, and I mean that's hopefully as t- time goes by too that can in- improve, right? Yeah, and that that has been my experience as mm-hmm. time has gone by. My relationship with my mom has gotten better and better and better. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about this being like yeah. It's, Funny how you start taking like the various forms of violence out of a relationship and it starts to improve. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> um, speaking of nonviolent communication. <laughs> roundabout back way to it. Yeah. Like full circle. Um, it is. It is. So these, these four stages, right? I'm right. like, we're going to get to the end of an hour and I'm going to be like, and that's the second stage. So we've been through. Um, so of the four stages, the first one is to make those empirical observations. Yes. Just like you were saying, you're trained for work to do. Yes. You, you make these observations of like what's happening. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be sharing your feelings at that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the it's either the second or the third stage that is feelings and needs. I get these confused all of the time. I'm pretty sure the second stage is needs, but okay. I'm going to look it up um, just so that I don't just for give accuracy. People, I just don't want to give people bad information. I think that's fair. Yeah. Wow. National Visa Center comes up on DuckDuckGo. What are you doing to me? I want I want the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Um, right. NBC stages. There we go. Conflict coaching. Ooh. <laughs> I'm just going to write down that I need to edit this. And then I will just find it. Sounds good. I just had to put in the word for. Mm. Oh, no, I was wrong. Okay. I was wrong. (laughs) So it is observations, then feelings, then Mm. needs, then requests. So after observations, so you're making a whole bunch of, like, faces red. I've noticed you're standing. Like, those kinds of, like, big things. Or if it's something different, you can, can, if you're catching that a partner might be depressed, Mm -hmm. um, it's best not to guess at that. Right. Um, especially if a person has like, and, and I find as a person with a history of having a parent kind of gaslight you and be like, no, you, you really like this vegetable. And you're like, mm. but do I? I, I don't think I do. And then they like convince you, you like it by gaslighting the fuck out of you. And then you try something you're like, this is disgusting. Like, I'm, <laughs> I don't like this vegetable. Why did you tell me I did? And they're like, 
they're like, oh, you used to like this vegetable. And it just leaves you untrusting right. with yourself. And that can be highly damaging to children to to teach them not to trust themselves. Mm-hmm. And then people end up pushing through um, really difficult emotions because they don't trust that their emotions are being accurate or mm-hmm. honest with them. That can be super damaging. Of course. Especially in intimate relationships. Yes. Okay. So we go through observations um, and then touching on feelings. It's, hmm, I got totally like distracted by what I just said about about parental baggage. I'm like, man, I really get distracted by like my parents sometimes, as, I, as I'm sure many people do. Yes. So feelings. The wonderful thing about feelings in the NBC framework is their internal experiences. Mm-hmm. So saying I feel alone would be distinctly different from saying I feel abandoned. Right. One of those requires a third party to mm-hmm. have that feeling. Yes. I'm not experiencing a crushing sense of loneliness. I'm experiencing being abandoned, which right. is a narrative. I'm now printing a script into my into my thoughts mm-hmm. that's going into my internal monologue, but it's masquerading as feelings. So okay. I'm saying I feel abandoned. And what I mean is I'm feeling a sense of loneliness and I'm blaming that on someone who abandoned me. Right. I'm feeling a sense of unfairness and that unfairness is being projected onto a situation that may or may not have been unfair. Right. It may have been someone withdrawing consent to participate in something. And I am putting the narrative of abandonment over top of that. I see. And I'm doing that with one word. Yeah. <laughs> and it's totally derailing that whole internal monologue. No kidding. It's cr- it's so <laughs> interesting to me that like word choice can be that significant. That's one of the reasons I love NVC. Is right. like that specific thing is is the reason I love NVC mm-hmm. because it helps me catch my own shit. Which is important. It's so important. <laughs> it's like without having this kind of clarity on what I was doing in my internal monologue, right. it would have been really hard for me to get to a place where I had a healthy internal monologue mm-hmm. where I could say, I am feeling really lonely right now. I have needs for connection. I have needs for intimacy. I have needs for um, feeling like even, even, even I have needs for security mm-hmm. and I want to get those met by having the experience of feeling liked yes. and like... I can have that experience right now without talking to other people. Mm-hmm. It's just something I have to I have to work through in my own head. There's something called um, cognitive distortions. Right. And that tends to be where we leave situations socially and we say things like, they all thought I was an idiot. Mm. Or like, I looked like garbage today and everyone noticed. It's it's these projections of our feelings onto other people to right. validate our own feelings, when they're especially when they're negative. I was going to say when they're negative, yeah. Because it's probably fine to have the cognitive distortion of being like, I was a total rock star. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone that's not going to be damaging me. for you usually. <laughs> yeah. And and that's the takeaway, right? Yeah. Typically, cognitive distortions aren't a problem unless they're a problem. You know what I mean? Totally. It's like if they're if they're impacting you in a really negative way, they're a problem. Yeah. And if they're not, then go on. who really go cares, can right? Go forth yeah. and have all these lovely thoughts about yourself. Totally. I don't think it's about having like a sanitized internal monologue. It's in, in my opinion, it's about having like a functional internal monologue. Right. Just being able to be like healthy and and mostly happy or at least able to be happy. Right. Because I'm as a person that struggles with depression, I've definitely had the experience of not feeling able to be happy. Yeah. And for long stretches. Fortunately, those come fewer and fewer for me and they're shorter and shorter. And I and I think I reached a place like six months ago or so where I was like, oh, I, I don't think I meet the requirements for being clinically depressed anymore. Oh, that's a nice realization. Yeah. I was like... Anytime I experience depression, it's like less than five days at a time, mm. which is great. Yeah, no kidding. 
I, I had depressions that were like months long or oh felt gosh. like they were months long. Yeah. And they weren't always like bedridden style depression. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there was definitely a like, I'm going to turn on my computer, return to my bed and just watch television all day. Although when I was that depressed, we didn't have Netflix. So I literally just had to like pirate all of my. <laughs> oh, bad. <laughs> I know. I know. I was, I was bad. But I mean, when you're depressed and you're struggling through like yeah. this t- the types of things I was struggling through, it's really hard to care about things like that. I don't pirate anymore. I use Netflix now because it's easier. Mm-hmm. In fact, that was my argument for piracy a long time. I was like, the second they make it easier to pay for things than to not pay for things, I will happily pay for things. Yeah. And yeah. they just didn't until Netflix. I love Netflix. It's just so honestly good. like I care so much less about what I'm specifically watching mm-hmm. and so much more about like the experience I have watching. Okay. So for me, I'm starting to like, and this is this is definitely me getting off topic, but I'm I'm starting to like decouple being like intensely needing to do a specific thing okay. with like, what was I trying to achieve and why am I doing the thing I'm doing? Okay. It's how I'm tackling compulsive eating, which was a thing I was struggling with for a while and which I've started to have some wins against, which is really good. Okay. Good for you. Yeah. Thank you. It's not easy. Of course. <laughs> Nothing word, ever is. <laughs> hence, hence the word compulsive. Yeah. Right? Typically people don't use the word compulsive unless literally you're holding the food and you're like, I really should put this back. And you're like, or I could just not. And fuck it, I don't really care anymore. Yeah. Like you kind of lose that battle of will and and you're sitting there just being like, I don't really care that I'm doing this, but I acknowledge I've lost all control of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. I've been very fortunate that I think even in situations where I've had really negative mental health experiences, I've processed them in such a way that they haven't felt super extreme. Okay. So even though I'm like, oh, I can see this is clearly a problem. This mm-hmm. is like meeting criteria diagnosably is an issue. Um, I always have like, or hmm, there's me using always and never again. I I frequently have had issues where I downplay the severity of things that I are going see. wrong in my life. Yes. Or I I downplay that I'm allowed to have the the centering that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm allowed to have the attention or focus to say oh I need help or or I'm having a problem. Like I can ask one person individually for help. But can I publicly like be seen asking for help from a group? I'm trying to practice right. it more and more, but it's hard. Well, and I think for me too, um, that reminds me of going back to with separation and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I only have a, there's a few people at, at my job that I've told about it. Um, and I think I'm really good at sort of hiding it when things are bothering me. Mm-hmm. Um, as you were just saying, because I, I, the people that I told were sh- so shocked that something like that was going on in my life because I'm I'm acting very normal like I haven't missed any work um, yeah. you know I'm asking everyone how their how they are, their day's going and all of that good stuff but yeah I, I guess I haven't had the ability to kind of like I there's an embarrassment a that I totally. don't want them to find out about this um, that like I had a failed relationship do you and, feel like there's shame behind that embarrassment yes I do yeah that it's like well why couldn't I have made it work like right. I'm still pretty young like mm-hmm. um especially because I haven't been at the job that long. So it's like, oh yeah, they found out that I was married and now it's like, yeah. So it's a lot of people don't know. And it's sort of, I, the only reason I would have shared it with someone is because they kind of asked mm. about my relationship or about, you know, if I was doing something with, with my partner. Mm-hmm. And I, so I had to, instead of lying, I had to, well, I didn't have to, but I did share. Um, yeah. So I'm getting kind of off, off sidetracked. No, no, but, it's fine. You do you. <laughs> thank you. Um, and even with uh, when the separation first occurred, I didn't want to tell anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I and I think that was the shame piece um, mm-hmm. that it was just 
and an and denial. Like this isn't happening, and my life is not going to change. I I don't want it to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course telling people makes it more real. Definitely. Um, so when my ex started telling her family and things like that, that was like kind of soul crushing. <laughs> yeah, because all of a sudden it had a form. Yeah, it was final in a way. Exactly, because it, it feels more final if someone if if you're sharing the, these with your this information with your family, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if we'd kept it a secret, then it can kind of pretend that it didn't happen. Yeah. And uh, going along again with what you were talking about, um, even like reaching out to friends and stuff, like I didn't even mm-hmm. want, like I was struggling, but I didn't want to say anything. Mm-hmm. So having that, uh, the ability to kind of reach out, I think is something I sometimes struggle with because I want to be perceived a certain way. Yeah. Um, so why, do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think you want to be perceived? Um, I think it's a self-confidence thing. Sure. Um, is there, and again, I don't mean to lead you in any way. No, please. But I have definitely had the experience where fear of being seen is related to fear of being harmed. Mm. It's like any time I dropped my guard and was vulnerable um, when I was a child, right. I was actively harmed for doing that. Right. Whether that was by bullies at school, whether that was by friends at school, whether that was by teachers mm-hmm. at school. Um, I was sexually assaulted as a child. Mm. I told a teacher and, and she literally laughed at me and told oh, me to sit down. Like that, that was horrific. Her, that was her reaction to that. Um, That's awful. I mean, I, I, it's so hilarious how the first thing I do is try and defend her, but I just want to qualify it by saying it was another student. Mm. Um, and the student was assigned female at birth. Right. So I, I don't think that she believed that was the thing that could happen. Right. I think what's really dark about that example is most people who are probably in the know would say, oh, it is really unusual for an assigned female at birth child um, or any child for that matter to have notions of how to go about sexually assaulting someone when you're all prepubescent without prior fucking experience. Yes. I think that teacher missed someone who was being actively sexually abused because she didn't take me seriously. Yeah. I would probably agree with that. And it's like, I think that actually gives me comfort, not that someone else was suffering, but that I can put some sort of reason or understanding yes, to how the situation happened. So because I can like ground myself in like, this is just the cycle of abuse and this person didn't mean anything towards mm-hmm. you specifically, it's easier. Right. So I kind of am lucky that way because yeah. it is a horrific situation. Like yeah. that is that is like the worst way to respond to a child being like, I was I was I specifically received the education that was like, like tell someone yeah yeah that's literally like it literally is says you know tell an adult you trust exactly and i was like well i no longer trust that adult well and then it, that can even lead into other issues with trust right totally. from other authority figures or yeah. you know um and then leading into well they don't believe me the shame all of that totally. kind of stuff right so that that one interaction with that teacher has such a profound effect well i'm still talking about it today and it was like in grade two yeah well then that's but it's very formative yeah yeah that speaks very uh very um intensely i guess Mm -hmm, about how mm -hmm. that situation affected you yeah yeah and so speaking about trust and and being seen a certain way it's it's less about my need to be amazing or perfect Mm -hmm. and all about my need to be free from a crushing sense of shame that i think i still carry with me today yeah yeah no and i think woof. (laughs) yeah um that's that's intense yeah Um, (laughs) but the self-awareness of that is but but i think without sharing shame it just it gets infected like the air of speaking shame is what kills 
wow, I'm such a microbial student. Like I full on was like, it is like what kills the anaerobic bacteria of shame. Um, but it, it is like medicine, like being able to speak your shame and be seen being ashamed right. is part of almost the punishment maybe. And maybe this is a very unhealthy mindset, but like okay. the punishment that you never got. Mm. It's like if you get, and this is something I learned from masochists, not even masochists actually. This is something I learned from slash S's. So like Sur- um, submissives, servants, slaves, etc. Okay. People who identify as being submissive in some way. Sometimes there is punishment in a relationship in BDSM and it's not punishment. So we use the word punishment to be like, haha, you like jokingly did this bad thing and haha, I'm like punishing you and everyone's having a great time. I see. Other time there's punishment like, like go and lie on the floor face down mm-hmm. for 30 seconds and think about what you did. And that can be crushing for some people. That right. can be a horrific experience. And it can be the freedom from shaming and punishing themselves for the next six months. Right. So for them, having a compressed feeling of someone who I have given authority or autonomy, um, some part of my autonomy, some part of my submission, someone who I love and respect, I have given this trust to, and they are punishing me for something I did wrong. Mm -hmm. I did a bad thing and I'm being punished. And when it's over... It's done. It's done. Yeah. You just have this release from all of that. that. All of the shame is just like you you get this release that is so therapeutic and helpful. And again, just because kink is therapeutic does not make it therapy. (laughs) Right? You should still go to therapy. Yes. And it can still be a huge relief in the short term. Right. Yeah. So I I think part of being seen, being ashamed is realizing that all of the, the, that cognitive distortion of... I am a bad person. Yes. I, I, not just I have done bad, which is more the guilt and embarrassment, but yeah. like I am bad. I am somehow fundamentally broken or flawed. Right. That experience of shame. Yes. Being, being seen, essentially having that experience of shame and seeing people's reactions as like, are, are you okay? Like, <laughs> I care about you and I'm like concerned about the things you're saying because obviously I don't believe that's true. Yeah. Just having that invalidation of your shame publicly is so valid and so valuable because so frequently what folks who are experiencing shame do is they hide their shame and they only show off their attempts to be superhuman. They only show off their attempts to be perfect, their attempts to be good. And typically when you share anything with someone else, their perspective isn't going to line up with yours. There's going to be some disconnect. And if all you show off is the positive parts of your life or the parts that you're trying your best to make look positive, you're only going to get that, that questioning. Or, or if you do get a lot of positive reinforcement, sure, you're doing all these good things. And I'm concerned about this other stuff over here. You're only going to hear that negative stuff because that's the stuff you're primed and afraid of. That's, that's the shame stuff. Yeah. And I mean, and I think too, um, with, like the only t- the people at work who were just like, oh, I'm so proud of you for how well you're handling this, blah, blah, blah. That sort of just reinforces that, well, then it's not okay to be feeling mm. upset or showing that you're upset. And then if I now do, then then I failed or, you know, because it's absolutely I've already set it up that I'm okay. Even yeah. if I'm not, that's just what they've been perceiving of me. Right. And now if they find out that I'm not okay, are they going to think I was being dishonest? Are they going yeah. to be further upset with me than they would have originally? And then it's like, then you think, well, should I be not okay? Like, should I be okay? Like, is is it okay that I'm not okay when I'm at home and alone and feeling, you know, sad right. or whatever? Um, and I think I know in my brain that it's okay to be upset about, you know, a big life change. Sure. But... Um, That's probably why people at work were checking in with you because they were like, oh, this is... Yeah. Yeah. And I think I have one particular coworker who I'm close with who she does check in. Um, and I, I mean, I share a bit with her, but... It, 
I don't know. And I don't work is so tricky with that way too, because you want to be professional, of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, bringing my crap into the workplace won't necessarily serve me in any way. Um, other than having some support from people who I see every day. You can also choose to make like a a full stop, like break between the two worlds. In that if you do have friends from work outside, you can say like, Hey, I'm like, especially if they ask you a question that's verging on something personal, you can say like, cool, we're entering area that for me feels not safe for work. I'm happy giving you the answer to that question. But if we do, it's not that I want you to like lie for me at work or anything, Mm -hmm. but like, I really want to make a clear distinction between professional Sia at work and private Sia with her friends after work. Like those are two different worlds. I will behave differently in those two different worlds. And that's what I need to feel safe and professional at work. Yeah. Is that the kind of arrangement you're comfortable with? And just kind of like having that negotiation, that talk about it. Yeah, that's true. I think for me, I don't have a lot of my friends um, aren't in like the lower mainland anymore. So I don't have a lot of, um, well, that's a lie. I do have support, but maybe not as much as I want. Okay. So um, I think that's probably why I've talked a little bit about what was going on with work people. But again, like I, it's so complicated. It's also, (laughs) it's also okay to say like, not as much as I feel like I need. Right. Yeah. Because it's really easy to, to own our needs in the form of wants. And it's really hard to own them in the form of needs. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're correct. It would be that I, I think I need more support, more um, sort of human connection. And like, cause when you, when you have a partner for a long time, you, and you live with them, you, you know, you have someone to spend time with and do things with and, you know, go out for food and whatever else, um, that Mm -hmm. person that, that you can get comfort from and going from that to be living in an apartment by myself. Yeah. That's a huge change. It is. Um, yeah. And so I, yeah, I, I wish, and I think I need more support and work. Uh, I don't know, someone to do stuff with. <laughs> yeah. Like an activity partner of some kind. Yeah. Go yeah. rock climbing with. Oh my God. I couldn't go <laughs> rock climbing. <laughs> but yes, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it's just, I was just tossing an activity out there. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I am terrified of heights. Oh, so okay. rock climbing is a no for me, but maybe you. like swimming. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> but um, yeah, like, and I, it's like one of my really good friends, like she also just went through a breakup and so she's dealing with her own crap too. So trying, like, I would like her to be more of a support for me, but I also recognize that she's struggling as well. So right, trying right. to deal with both of our crap. That's a lot. Good luck. <laughs> Have you, oh, what, is, what is it called? It is, oh, I'm trying to remember what it's called think it's called ring theory but it's the notion that like people who are currently at a deficit for getting their needs met right this this is my summary of ring theory it's okay. not how it's explained <laughs> okay but people who are at a deficit of getting their needs met kind of bail crap out of the center of like the trauma circle mm-hmm. and you sort of have all of these concentric circles where you have like the traumatized human in the center mm-hmm. and and there's no shame in being traumatized from losing a really important relationship that's right. totally okay not that i'm in any way suggesting that's what happened for you i'm just letting you know that okay. like <laughs> you don't need like a certain level of shitty things to happen to you for you to consider yourself traumatized. It's yes. Yes. And that's actually something I do struggle with. Um, yeah. because, it, and I, I know like in my brain, I know just because you've like had some kind of trauma or had some, any kind of like abuse or you struggle with mental health, mm-hmm. there's this, individuals who could benefit from counseling or medication or whatever. They always think, well, not they, I shouldn't say everyone, but uh, or often, always. yeah, <laughs> always. I'm just throwing all the bad words out there. <laughs> and they're not bad words. They're just words we use that are maybe less functional or helpful. I, yeah, you're correct. Um, but often people will think, well, there's someone else else that has it worse. Mm-hmm. So I don't deserve help. 
Right. And that I think that um, that's something that that I struggle with personally. And mm-hmm. I think that that was that was a, a weight on my relationship um, because my ex always would say, you know, I think you'd benefit from some counseling. I think you would, you know, benefit from dealing with some of your crap. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> not in those words. I see. But and I would be like, yep, yep, yep. And I would never pursue it. Right. What do you think was getting in the way? Um, I would, I would tell her money. Sure. I, uh, I don't know. I, I, it is part of the, like, well, I function. Right. It, so I should be okay. But I don't function, like, optimally. There's this, <laughs> totally. And there's this, um, some people use the phrase, shooting all over yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it is, like, it's, like, emotionally toxic to some extent. It, yeah. It's very much, like giving yourself no choice mm-hmm. you're like i should do this and i am unable to something is wrong with me it touches back on shame for not yeah. following a script right and often that model is modeled for us by someone else in our life yeah where someone else gives you a script you have to be this kind of person you should be doing these things why aren't you doing these things you should be doing these things yes and then we internalize that model of shaming ourselves for compliance to do what we feel like we need to do right and at a certain point when that model breaks down, or if it was never functional to begin with, you're left in this really nasty place where the shame can pile up. Well, and I think for me too, it's also the anxiety of having to meet someone new and what, what would I say? And like, I don't like new situations. Sure. Um, and I did, I actually have thought to myself, well, if I make an appointment with a counselor, mm-hmm. what, what am I going to say? You know? It's, it's more, in my opinion, it's more about having the space than about saying anything. Yeah. Even just having the space to go to. And it, it is a little bit expensive, but there are also sliding scale counselors, especially for queer folks. Well, and a friend of mine did, did mention that. Um, I also get free counseling th- through work. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I just haven't done it. I like how your excuse was money and you're like, technically, <laughs> Originally it was. Oh, okay. Yeah. From, that was from a few years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed yeah. even funnier in light of that. I was like, <laughs> Yeah, no, um... I tried to access online counseling when I was working um, in a previous job. Yeah. Um, but it, it wasn't helpful. It's like an email yeah. that I get once a week, like a response a week later. I'm like, well, that's not helpful because I'm not experiencing that anymore. Yeah. Or it's, ex- or it's changed or or whatever, right? So yeah, it's that's like unhelpful. Sort of just forwarding me information on cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'm like, I sure. could look this up myself. Like, yeah. Yeah. So. That sucks. Yeah. And, and I, maybe that's also like, I'm like, well, it didn't do anything. But I recognize that it, the mode was probably not the best. I think it's more um, it's more impactful if you're actually sitting down with someone and having a, like a real conversation. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm I'm still telling myself I'm going to make an appointment. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. Cool. Well, if you want me to poke you about it, I can always poke you about making an appointment. Okay. Because <laughs> I recognize even as somebody who's like a huge counseling advocate, when I first have to book a counseling session yeah. again. It takes me months. Right. There's anxiety around it. And there's just this reticence. Like, I just don't want to do it for some reason. And it just like, it is really hard for me to book my first counseling session. Right. The second I've booked it, I might feel silly about spending the money. I might not know what I'm going to say. Like, those are really normal feelings. Um, I I certainly experience all of those feels anyway. Right. Whatever normal means. I certainly experience those feels. So for me, it feels normalized. But once I start going, I'm typically like especially if there's a lot of stuff to work through, I'm miserable in the session. Right. And then as soon as the session's over, 
I, I experience all this relief yeah. that I'm done the session. And typically I don't necessarily notice a change week to week, but I notice a change month to month. Of course. And then I really notice a change year to year. Yeah. Over the last like 15 years of various going to counseling, stopping counseling, going back to counseling. Yeah. Um, I'm currently in counseling today. And yeah, I started when I would have been 18. Wow. And I'm 32. Yeah, I think the one, the work stuff, it's it's supposed to be, um, uh, what's the word, short term. Yeah. But you can attend for multiple, it, the short term's for one issue. So if you have multiple right. issues, you can end up going for sure like a year or whatever. So short term can be effective. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good starting place. And that's the thing. I think, yeah, I probably would once i eventually get into it look into so yeah something more long term um but this is free dragonstone counseling is sliding scale right i remember you gave me that resource a while <laughs> ago and i didn't access it which is okay that's really normal like, yeah it's gonna take a lot of attempts to access counseling yeah, yeah that's true and i think the more you normalize that the easier it is to make a sixth or seventh attempt or yeah. 20th attempt when well, i feel kind of hypocritical too because i'm constantly encouraging my clients to go to counseling and that's not hypocritical that's just like <laughs> responsible yeah and i'm like oh yeah everyone can benefit from it blah 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 and then i'm not listening to my own advice oh i see well i mean they probably aren't either (laughs) (laughs) but you're also saying the right things right like people just need to hear it enough and they need to be around people who go to counseling enough and eventually they will go like i'm confident eventually you will go to counseling yeah it's just gonna take you a while to get there and that's okay and maybe not having the pressure of feeling like you have to do it now or something's wrong with you will be enough relief of pressure to be like oh maybe i will pick up the phone today right and just have it done and I think too, uh, then I questioned myself, well, what if I had listened to her, my ex, and what if I had gone, would I still be in that relationship? Because I know that was a big sticking point for her. Yeah. Um, it, more so, I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and I don't know if that was me not listening or maybe breakdown in communication. Um, but during slash after um, the separation, that was something that she had pointed out. That she'd mentioned it before? That it was really important to her that, oh, I, I, that I had addressed my mental health and that I didn't, that that was yeah. like, that I wasn't doing what she wanted for me. Yeah. Basically. So then I think, what if I'd done it earlier? Sure. And that's interesting. I don't want to get too much into, into the, like, like you mentioned before, like trying to predict what another person was thinking or feeling. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't want to make any comments about this specific situation, but what I will say hypothetically <laughs> <laughs> Is, is it is possible for a person to be supportive as a partner and feel like what the support level that they're offering is more short-term rather than long-term. Right. And if it becomes like a long-term staple and they don't see change, they may start to feel depleted. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that was the case for you, um, but I, I will say that it is, it may not be important at first. Right. And it may creep and get more and more important. So yeah. it, it may not be that, it was necessarily anyone's fault. Right. I mean, it might have been from no one's fault all the way through to like full-blown denial of like, <laughs> I don't want this to be important. So yeah. I'm choosing not to frame it as important. Yeah, could be. Right. But there's like... And I ha- that's all hindsight. I don't sure. know what the reality is. Sure. Um, I think I think the reality is you didn't go to counseling. Yes. And the more that you think about changing the past, like the harder that's going to be for you. I, I mean, yeah. I would think. Yeah. No, that's true. Because yeah, you, I'm not in that situation anymore. Yeah. Um, and you know pursuing counseling at this time even yeah. though i would recognize that it's beneficial it i think you're closer anything. yeah and that's all you can do is like move in the right direction that's true if you evaluate it as a binary it's just going to feel like a failure until it doesn't mm-hmm. and often like 
you have 90% of attempting to get to a, to a win before you're actually at a place where you're like, okay, I'm past this arbitrary mark that was my goal. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm now succeeding at this thing rather than failing at this thing. True. So the more you frame it as like, I'm failing at doing this thing or I should be doing this thing and I'm not, like, I think that's just going to add a lot of stress and, and challenge mm-hmm. and probably anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it often. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, thinking about going to counseling is good, but it's, it's a question of like, how are you framing it? Mm -hmm. Like, is it thinking of, is it shaming yourself or is it like, you know what I mean? Like there's so many different ways to think about a thing. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Anyways. Anyway, (laughs) we can definitely get back to talking more about nonviolent communication if you would like. Why not? So we got through observations. And we got through feelings, talking about them as internal states. These are my feelings that I'm feeling about my current state. Mm-hmm. They're not feelings I'm in, in with respect to things other people are doing. Okay. So what are they with respect to? That's a good question. I'm so glad you asked it. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're with respect to needs. So NVC has a set of needs that it has sort of organized as being one approximation of a collection of human needs. Okay. It is the simplest, it is one of the simpler ways to think of human needs that I have found, which doesn't mean there aren't better ways out there. It is just one framework. So it classifies all of human needs, all of them, apparently. Wow. Right? (laughs) Into seven general categories. It breaks them up into needs for connection, needs for physical well-being, needs for honesty, needs for play, Mm -hmm. needs for peace needs for autonomy and needs for meaning and those are very general words for a reason they allow you to bunch a whole bunch of other needs underneath those banners right so needs for meaning for example that could be someone struggling with like what's my what was my purpose like why am i here yeah all the way through to um my pet dog just died or i just lost my my sister or my grandmother Mm -hmm. or my mom or my dad um Needs for meaning can be needs for grief. Okay. And I think that is a fantastic framing that I never understood before I discovered this framework. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I like the NVC needs framework is things like that. I'd, I'd never thought about grieving as a need for meaning. Yeah, and I, I'm sort of struggling with, with how that relates. Right. So if you think about grieving for loss... Mm-hmm. You had an experience of a person or of a thing or of an event or whatever, or of a pet for a certain period of time. And then you no longer are able to have that experience. Right. The notion of loss, in my opinion, and I'm not a grief counselor, I'm not any kind of counselor, <laughs> but the notion of loss in my lay uninformed opinion <laughs> is, is one of expectation. We had the expectation a thing was just going to continue and it didn't. Yes we got the experience we got and often at the time we were getting it we didn't realize that was what the experience was yeah Yeah. so I think it can sometimes be a struggle to be like okay this person is no longer in my life whether for whatever reason Mm -hmm. um and why like I don't understand why that is like what did it mean for them to be in my life right what does it mean that I didn't necessarily know what I know now like I couldn't have known that it was going to end then right I know that now in hindsight yes and like does that mean that I took them for granted in the moment? I was doing the best I could with the information I had. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that very much that way about my separation. I didn't see it coming and like definitely felt that loss. Well, and continue to do so, of course. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I, I, I share that notion of when you love someone, um, in my experience, loving people doesn't tend to go away. Yeah. Some people don't have that experience. Okay. So I don't mean to say like, when you love someone, dot, 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 then you must. That, that's not how I mean this. I, I guess I mean to say my experience of love is one that transforms. It is not an experience of one that disappears. Right. But that's also because I come from a non-monogamous framework of right. believing that you can have really intense, intimate love with multiple people. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, well, when you when you are no longer in a place where both people want to be in that relationship or yeah. want to support each other's needs yes. in the way they did. Exactly. Does that mean you no longer care about that person? For me, I would answer, of course not. Like, yeah. I love that person. I always love that person. And not being with them might be difficult sometimes. But I, you know, respect, obviously, you've probably come to the same conclusions of respecting people's wishes and those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not, it's not easy uh, yeah. in, in terms of... <clears throat> um, separating when you don't want to and having to respect that that's what the other person needs or wants or that's their reality for them yeah um and i think it's difficult in that situation to also like think oh that person still cares for me you know because it's especially in like sort of mainstream like what what even in the media it's like oh as soon as you separate from someone that means you just hate each other and you can never speak again and (laughs) (laughs) you know it's just like battles and but that's not the case necessarily yeah um and even though um like i was saying to you before um even though i don't agree with the separation and i don't agree with some of the behavior that she's exhibited following the separation sure um and i have a lot of negative feelings surrounding that that doesn't mean that i can't continue uh, like a relationship of some kind sure even if it's not an intimate one yeah and and i think it's interesting how we use the word intimate to mean specifically like domestic or sexual right when there are so many ways to love someone true and there are so many ways to show that you love someone that is true we will touch more on service next session uh, when we talk about ways to love someone. <laughs> but we're almost through the NVC framework. So okay. I'm interested in powering through this. Please if that's, continue. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, and again, I don't mean for this to be like me talking at you, which is no, kind of what it's turned into. That's okay. But okay. I'm learning things. Cool. <laughs> so there are these seven different kinds of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And you can bunch things under them. So like a need for honesty might be a need for integrity. Um, it might be a need for authenticity. Mm-hmm. It might be... Um, yeah, just a need to like have some security against feeling gaslit. If you've had a relationship where you were really gaslit and suddenly you're in a new relationship and a person's like, you know, I'm going to go do this tonight. And then like an hour before they're like, you know what, actually I'm going to go do this. And you're just like, Ugh, I can't <laughs> handle this because it's like, right. And yet yeah. for a lot of people changing their mind with an hour's notice is totally fine. That's just part of their spontaneous mm-hmm. way of being. And that's wonderful for them. And sometimes tragic for the anxious people that happen to be around here here (laughs) right you're like i can't relate with this at all (laughs) like must plan everything and some people wouldn't even call that a need for honesty at that point they might call that a need for security which might tie into um a need for physical well-being or an experience of physical well-being because security can be um security can be emotional security as well right. it doesn't have to be physical safety it can just be the sensation of physical safety which we often get from our emotions mm-hmm. so if someone's saying something that feels very socially threatening to us publicly um that can trigger all of the same physical safety responses in our bodies of course right but some people wouldn't say of course <laughs> but yes i agree with you I'm obviously to somebody who experiences anxiety you're like yeah i'm like 100 yeah. <laughs> percent I'm with you. Send this to 10 years ago. Like, I I get it. Yeah. Um, Right. And then connection can be so many different things again. It can be acceptance. 
It can be affection, like just to feel liked Mm -hmm. and to have that expressed. It can be a sense of belonging in a community. That can be a sense of connection. And yet that's so different from like having one person show affection. And yet they're both sort of needs for connection. Right. Um, It can be a need for companionship. It can be, as in a sense, connection can be a sense of security as well. um, Because it can be um, a sense of stability or support or the notion of just being seen as Mm -hmm. who you are, being understood. It can be a need for trust to feel like you can have something grounded in and something that that you hold with someone else where you both have a lot of trust with each other that like, you know, no matter how things go, you'll always have that same level of respect for each other, even if your needs change. Right. And that creates that security, right? Yeah. And what's interesting about me coming at this framework is I'm a relationship anarchist, which means... (laughs) I'm totally comfortable with needs looking how they look. Right. And by totally comfortable, I mean totally accepting. <laughs> because obviously if someone says to me, I no longer want to explore our interactions with needs for this type of connection or right. that type of connection, that might be something I'm uncomfortable with. I might be totally... Um, obviously, I would be completely respectful of right. them choosing to withdraw from those types of connection. And again, I'm just using an unnecessarily intellectual framework to talk about all the same things that you're talking about. Right, right? Yeah. So just because this sounds complicated doesn't mean that it's quote-unquote right or that you should use these words or anything like mm-hmm. that. I just find this exploration helpful for like a few glancing things right. that it was able to give to me that no other explanation of these things was able to give to me. Okay. Which is part of why I've landed at Relationship Anarchy is like understanding these needs is separable. Yes. So my needs for physical well-being or connection in the sense of having a domestic relationship might be different or separate from my needs for sex. Right. I can have a sexless domestic relationship and go and get my sexual needs met elsewhere, Mm -hmm. but still come home to the person I'm in a domestic relationship with. Yeah. Or for that matter, maybe my domestic relationship is totally asexual and aromantic. Maybe I have a roommate. Right. But I still get needs for community and safety met there. Yes, that's true. And having an intentional, um, an intentional approach to having a roommate or having a household can be really healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Well, we are, as I said before, almost done. So I'm going to power through this. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> I think play is one of the ones people miss the most. Okay. Or maybe I say that because I'm a serious person. I think play is one of the ones I have missed the most. Okay. <laughs> and play, I will let you define it. No, you can, you can ask. I'm just, you can I'm take, just wondering, take yeah, guesses, like, is like, that sort of like, um, I don't know, fun? Like doing something you enjoy? Probably, um, yeah. It can be fun. It can be telling jokes. It can be like clowning around. It can be horseplay. It can be whatever play looks like for you. Right. And even... Um, like a hobby of some kind totally because you know people get wrapped up in work and you know yeah. everything else especially as like as an adult and then you yeah you think well kids play but totally where's the fun in life if you're not doing anything you enjoy one of the words i love for talking about play is the word silly okay because there's something about the word silly that immediately brings people to what i think of when i think of play Mm-hmm. Like it brings people to the notion that we're not being serious right. and that we're exploring unusual ways of communicating or behaving. Okay. There's something out of the ordinary that helps meet needs for novelty or needs for adventure um, that I think can be similar to needs for play, mm-hmm. even though I think they fall under a different category in this dissection. Um, I definitely have needs for novelty. Sometimes those needs for novelty express themselves as needs for, I want to go date someone. Right. Um, I want to experience a new person and like 
try and like figure out rough edges and soft edges and just like be all up in that intimacy as it were <laughs> all up in it <laughs> all up in that intimacy because like emotions are are messy and they're yeah. difficult and like humans in relationships are are hard and it's an area that I actually do reasonably well at mm-hmm. I'm I'm able to fail at relationships in a way that's allowed me to be in a non-monogamous set of relationships. If I weren't so good at failing at relationships, (laughs) I wouldn't be able to be in the incredibly fortunate position I am with people for whom I'm enormously grateful that they are willing to hold space for my feelings, that they are willing to work on themselves every day, that they are willing to practice self-awareness, that they Mm -hmm. are willing to, to communicate with me. And just even when they fail, like the fact that we can hold space for each other and be like, I get it. You were feeling really, maybe you were feeling really de- defensive in that moment yeah. or something. And that's okay. Just giving people permission to fail is, is so important to being able to succeed. But that ties back into shame. If we can't give ourselves permission yeah, to exactly. fail. I was, to- I was definitely thinking that as you were saying it. Um, and then even it can go into expectations from the other person too. If you're not mm. allowing your partner to go through that um, sort of failure on their on their part, right? Yeah. Um, and if you're, you know, you're not okay with them having that. Um, like sort of space. negative experience yeah, yeah and having the space to allow that to to be okay without maybe thinking that it's an attack on that person totally that you know being able to have that non-shaming space and i think some of this does tie into trauma and being trauma aware in our approach to relationships right if someone's recovering from a really traumatic parent child relationship yeah and and or any other previous relationship that was really difficult or abusive even because mm-hmm. um, it doesn't need to be abusive for it to leave us with baggage of course but if you're wrestling with that it may come out as stuff that has nothing to do with the other person. I completely agree. And if that person isn't able to be be rec- cognizant or recognize like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. And it may even be helpful to point that out to the person who's currently experiencing really intense emotions and feelings. Right. But just, but, and, and I don't mean by saying like, oh, this clearly isn't about me. I'm leaving the room now. Or like, <laughs> like it's not necessarily the most supportive. Yeah. But even just saying like, I'm not understanding how this connects to what I did but I really want to be here for you. And maybe if I just sit here and listen to you talk or scream or cry or whatever, right. um, maybe it will become clear to me. Yeah. Like being able to sort of have that approach would be really helpful, but it's bordering on therapy. Like yeah. the amount of emotional labor that someone is doing in that moment is you're, you're asking for a tour de force from someone that they may not be able to provide. That's true. So I'm simultaneously mindful of like, here is the thing I wish I could do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I wish I could be that supportive person that can let someone literally scream at me and not get triggered by that. That is, yeah, I, that would be difficult. It would be amazing <laughs> if I could. <laughs> yeah. Not something I can do currently, but you know, life, bu- life, like bucket list. Yeah, life there you goals. go. <laughs> yeah. Maybe one day. Always improving. So yeah, I think anyways, I think I've kind of talked it to death, but that, that's sort of the general outline for needs mm-hmm. is that there are these seven big broad categories and we can typically stuff all the other human needs we have in synonymous kind of forms. Right. We can typically sort of think of like, what am I having a need for? And so long as it's a need for um, something that's not necessarily super external, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's typically going to fall within NVC. And to be honest, I think even the ones that are somewhat external... Um, are ones that can be internal and external. Like even if you say I have like a need for love, it may be a need to be experiencing more love. Yeah. And that may not necessarily have to come from someone else, but coming from someone else may be the easiest way. Yes. So. Definitely. Hashtag counseling. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Another thing I love about NVC is that there is a feelings inventory. So you can literally look through and just be like, here is a list of all of the feelings 
and words for feelings that do not imply stuff that other people are doing. So you, they're, it's literally broken down into feelings you have when you're satisfied, when your needs are satisfied versus mm-hmm. when your needs are not satisfied. And the notion, the concept here is that having needs is what leads to us having feelings. Right. We have feelings about needs because they're feelings. If you think of, think about feelings as internal states only, yes. then you think about your needs essentially as a human being and how you feel about those needs. Mm-hmm. So n- fe- when your needs are satisfied, maybe you have your needs for connection satisfied. You mm-hmm. feel secure. You feel companionship. You feel all those wonderful things. You might feel compassionate or friendly or loving or open-hearted. You might feel totally absorbed by by a conversation you might feel curious engrossed enchanted entranced like there's just this whole list of vocabulary when you're peaceful you might feel calm or clear-headed or comfortable or centered or content fulfilled mellow quiet relaxed relieved satisfied serene still tranquil trusting I'm sorry i wanted to go through all of them i wasn't going to originally but they felt so good to say <laughs> that i just wanted to say all of them that's yeah. I have no problem with that. That's the, I mean, I think that d- different words can in, like even though they're they can be very similar. They, they can, can be quite different. Yes, exactly. So I think it's important that there are so many different words. I think it's important we have these words. Yeah. Because not having the vocabulary almost means those feelings don't exist for you. Right. Whereas if you can read through and sort of familiarize yourself with vocabulary you can bring that as a tool to conversations and relationships. Definitely. All of a sudden you can you can talk about like um like having having a need for more peace in your life and just wanting to feel a little more mellow right that that's a really easy thing to say for people who have the words yes it is a really hard thing to say for people who do not have the words well and then that turns into if you may not get that need met and then you right. can have some anger or lash which out is or, why yeah. we have feelings <laughs> when your needs are not satisfied <laughs> Feeling apprehensive, Ah, feeling dread, feeling foreboding, feeling frightened or mistrustful. Because that doesn't mean that you don't trust a specific person. It means you are feeling mistrustful. Right. And that line is really important when trying not to say something that might lead your partner into a super defensive place where they're unreceptive to communication. Yeah, definitely. Certainly unreceptive to connection when someone's feeling really defensive, I think. Yeah. Depends on the person probably, but feeling panicked, petrified, scared, suspicious, terrified, wary, worried. Um, that's just what's under the afraid column. There's also annoyed or feeling angry, feeling aversion, feeling disconnected, feeling confused, feeling embarrassed, tense. These are all just categories now. Wow. Feeling fatigue, feeling pain, feeling vulnerable. Um, Because vulnerable can look like feeling fragile, feeling guarded, feeling Mm -hmm. helpless, feeling insecure, feeling shaky. Um, Vulnerability can also look like feeling exhilarated or feeling affectionate or engaged. Vulnerability can feel like being refreshed. It can feel like being grateful. There are so many Hmm. things you can feel around vulnerability. It doesn't have to be feeling um, guarded or helpless. Yeah, and I'm I'm surprised to hear some of those words, but I can also recognize how it's related. Totally. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I was spitballing more with the positive ones. I don't think there is a vulnerability column for them, but I was thinking about how vulnerability has made me specifically feel. Right. And that sometimes being incredibly vulnerable and tender and and having someone lovingly hold space for that can just lead to so much gratitude especially if you haven't had it before true that's been my experience anyway so that's what feelings can look like and it's it's so neat to have literally a free guide available um i will in fact i will write down um to post the inventories so that people listening can actually check them out 
But yeah, so that is, that is essentially the first three steps. And then the fourth final step is making a request. So once you have the impartial observations, you're just observing things you can empirically point to. You have feelings that are just about you. They're not necessarily implying anything about the other person. And then you talk about like, you think you're having those feelings because of needs. So you go from like, I'm observing, um, like for, I mean, you could do the anger ones. I think the easiest one for mm-hmm. me, um, red in the face, etc. You have all these things we talked about earlier for observations. You're having feelings. Maybe you're feeling um, vulnerable. Right. Um, or maybe you're feeling... Um, I'm trying to think of feelings and already the feelings inventory has left me (laughs) entirely. So this is a very hard framework to use sometimes, Mm. but the more you practice it, the better you get. And I'm not used to using feelings related to anger because I don't encounter it much. Mm. Um, But that might touch on, you might be feeling um, vulnerable because you have needs for security and maybe your needs for security aren't being met. And then you would make a request like, um, would you be would you be willing or would you consider maybe sitting down so we can mm-hmm. try that adjustment and see how this goes following that? It's it's more about making a request and the big difference in this category between a request and a demand right. is whether or not there are consequences. Okay. Because if you make a request that doesn't have any consequences attached to it and the second that it becomes clear that there are consequences, it's not necessarily a demand, but it's not a request either. Not an NVC request. Okay. So it's easy for that to be like a request that someone behave differently in a relationship mm. with the consequence that it is going to be like a person is going to make it their problem if they don't acquiesce right. and make that concession. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm just making a request for you to do this thing. But also when you say no about doing this thing, I'm going to continue to direct more of my feelings at you and make it your responsibility to process through my feelings with me. Right. So that can be one of those like fine lines that's harder to navigate right. around like, well, I want my partner, I, I, I would like to be able to have needs for support met by my partner. Mm-hmm. Also, I don't want them to feel burdened by me unloading emotions right. about a known disagreement. So it's more about like becoming acclimatized to each other mm-hmm. and understanding the things that aren't super productive to necessarily address mm-hmm. because you've had a productive conversation around them. You've come to good resolutions and this person has decided not to do certain things or to do certain things. And the acceptance that we don't have control over that can be really relieving and it can lead to places where there's less shame because if you can accept that you don't have control over it, it's really hard or at least it's harder. <laughs> I won't put a challenge as to how ashamed we can feel because I think we would both be all stars at that. Um, but but yeah, I think once you can accept that, like the powerlessness over another person's decisions, yeah, it becomes less about well, I didn't do the right things, right? Right, like I failed to make this relationship work, and it can be more about I did everything I could. I had a yeah. conversation, I expressed my needs, and that person made autonomous choices that I couldn't change. That's yeah, that's true. And that was their choice, and I have to respect their choice. That is part of me being, you know, a respectful partner yeah. is respecting their autonomy to make bad decisions when I think they're bad, and right. just respect that they might be bad decisions for me, but they're the right decisions for that person. And that rec- recognizing that you can't change that, yeah, which is tough. It's super tough because you want to you can like be in control of of what happens to you, right? Especially with anxiety, right? Because control can be like the go-to because it protects you from anxiety in the short term, yeah. But it builds up this unsustainable situation where you can't control everything forever. And the more you practice control, in my opinion, in my experience, mm-hmm. um, to get away from anxiety, the more you're surrendering your control to anxiety. Right. The more you're letting the anxiety make you control things. Yeah. And 
when the anxiety is in the driving seat, it's getting stronger, I find. Yeah, because you're not dealing with it. And the second you don't have control, all of that anxiety comes back. Yeah. Along with this intense sensation that if I could just get control, it would all go away. Yeah. It's like, it's a really... It's not a reality. (laughs) And it's just, it's a really nasty one too. No kidding. Yeah. It sets you up for like a lot of failure to pursue the control route. It's something I did for many, many, many years. (laughs) And mostly it worked. Yeah. People just knew me as an ornery control freak for a lot of my life, um, for lack of a better word. (laughs) Yeah. And I think uh, I exhibit some of that behavior as well for the reasons that you've already stated. Yeah. and I mean, and, and that recognizing that is, is good. I mean, cause then that's, that's when you can start to maybe try and change that behavior. Yeah. And I, and again, I think like being not public necessarily, but mm-hmm. being willing to air that shame with a confidant, right. having someone that you trust enough to be like, I feel a lot of shame today. Mm-hmm. And like, here are all the reasons why, and here's why I, th- I'm, I'm having all these thoughts about being totally wrong or broken or like made wrong or just like deserving of great punishment or shame or pain or like or like I feel like I've done this to myself like all of these heavily shame laden type thoughts being able to express that just to say it out loud Mm -hmm. can be so freeing even if it's not going to go 100% of the way but even 15% lighter is like the 15% that you couldn't carry you know yeah exactly and even if just expressing it doesn't necessarily change anything it's still your yeah like unburdening Mm -hmm. I can I can get that Mm -hmm. and I think we're pretty much we're pretty much there wow look at that yeah Yeah, we got through a whole session. We talked about shame. We talked about NVC. We mm-hmm. talked about needs and feelings. We talked about how challenging breakups can be. Oh, they're so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> and that's so much of like intimacy for me is like recognizing that you don't get to choose whether or not you get hurt. You just get yeah. to choose who hurts you. Yeah. I can see that. <clears throat> yeah. That, and I mean, I guess how you process it too, right? Definitely. Definitely. But I think acknowledging that I'm going to suffer in my life Mm -hmm. was a part of that surrender for me. I didn't think about it as surrender at the time. I didn't think about it as acceptance at the time. Mm -hmm. It was just like, oh, like I'm going to get hurt no matter who I date. Because at that time, um, I mean, I I guess I wasn't, I was practicing monogamy. I wouldn't say that I was monogamous, but I was practicing monogamy. And I thought I was monogamous. Mm -hmm. I thought I was just a really monogamous person that had no issues with jealousy, which is funny because the second you're non-monogamy, all those issues with jealousy come up and it's not like they don't exist. Like, oh, there they are. (laughs) Typically, they exist on some level. Right. It's just a question of, like, breaking that jealousy down into its component parts Mm -hmm. so you can be really clear about what specific thing you're being bothered by because jealousy is really an umbrella emotion. Right. So if you're talking about being generically jealous about a situation, it can be unhelpful for closure. But if you're talking about feeling an intense sense of envy for something someone has Mm -hmm. or feeling um, a really harrowing sense of insecurity or just feeling, like, an inexplicable sense of possessiveness... Mm -hmm you know, that maybe relates to underlying myths of like, but if, if someone loves someone else, does that mean they don't love me? Which is one of those like toxic monogamous myths, because even in monogamy, you can have situations where a person has a really intimate friendship. Yeah. And like, that can be really uncomfortable for some folks that are really attached to that sense of possessiveness of like, this is my human. No. And I can definitely see that. And that's, and I think that that, that reminds me of like, maybe old school traditional relationships where like my mom, she always has a hard time um, recognizing that uh, I can be friends with people of like same gender, different gender, whatever. Like mm-hmm. uh, she's, um, she more places it into like straight relationships, but it's like she, she would never go and hang out with a, with a male. 
because she would feel like as a friend because she'd be worried about quote unquote leading him on or like and that it would flirting and, or and that it would cause a strain with her relationship because she expects that he wouldn't be okay with her seeing wow so it's not even like this has been a thing that they've explored it's just that she expects that he like wouldn't be okay with yeah. it or there may or may not be history there possibly oh probably but yeah that's <laughs> That's really sad. Yeah. So, she, like, whenever I would be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with a friend or whatever. And she, she always, like, she's baffled. If right. It's, you know, because, yeah, she never, she wouldn't hang out with a male friend ever. Yeah. Wow. That's just, like, half the population you can't be friends with. I know. Even female friends, like, if, she, if she's spending too much time, she feels like it's taking away from the relationship. Wow. And so she's just, they just spend all their time together. Like, Right. I've heard the phrase emotional affair before. Mm. And I I get that some people are possessive of other people's like expressions of intimacy mm-hmm. and that those expressions may not be sexual. Right. At the same time, it's like like telling someone they like to me as a non-monogamous person as a relationship anarchist even, which is not the same thing as non-monogamy mm-hmm. because I have a monogamous relationship anarchist friend. <laughs> that's that's a fun one we can talk about later. I bet. Um but I just like, it just seems like asking someone not to live a full life. Yeah. I I don't know how else to frame it. I'm trying to say it in a way that's not in any way stigmatizing or offensive to people Mm -hmm. who maybe practice that, but it just feels so limiting that people are making the choice consciously to have what exists between them and one other person rather than to have a community. Well, and it makes me think too, um, my uh, mom's partner's ex recently, like, and this has been like 20 years since they separated. Mm Mm-hmm called him and said hey can you meet up i have some medical stuff i want to talk to you about which is kind of weird because they don't have a relationship at all right and he said no right and he said no because he told my mom that uh he would not be okay if she did that so he won't do it oh my goodness yeah so if my uh, past ex of my my mom had done the same thing if she went and met with them he would not be okay with that wow i'm like why so I, I have former partners, quote unquote, whatever former means, exes, quote unquote, whatever that means, <laughs> sure. who have literally kissed on the lips yeah, and still share moments of tenderness with from time to time. Which I think that's great. It's, I think it's at the very least, it's healthy and promotes closure, I think. Yeah. Um, some people may argue the opposite. And I think with the way my relationship looks with that human, like they're always going to be an incredibly special human in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I, or at the very least, I mean, we can't guarantee the future. So I'm always careful about making always and future promises. Of course, yeah. But, but I will say that I can't imagine a future where they're not important to me. Mm-hmm. If they came to me and said, I really need help with this thing, I would drop whatever I was doing and go help them. Like, that's how I feel. Like, I feel intensely dedicated to my mm-hmm. love for this person. And we don't live together anymore. We're not in any kind of power exchange dynamic. Mm-hmm. We don't really have a kink relationship anymore. Or no, we don't have a kink relationship anymore. Um, we don't have sex and I love the shit out of them. Right. They are incredibly important to me. In fact, I've recorded sessions with Piper. This is the person I'm talking about. Um, and the sessions get like rave reviews because people will tell me like, I, I love your dynamic with them so much. They're, they're <laughs> such a, and I'm, and I'm like, yeah, like I was, I was with them for years yeah. because I love them and right. I still love them. And even though that may not look the same, I may not express it the same way. I may not be in, in the types of intimacy exchange that people consider um, socially approved or relevant or or important, quote unquote. Right. And 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 maybe neither one of us really wants to be in those specific things, or if one of us wants to be, the other one doesn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the case. And regardless of all of that, it's like I still like we were I where we, we were at West Coast Bound, 
and um, they asked to borrow my car, and I was like, yeah, just take it. Right. Like, that's not something that's going to phase me, because, like, we used to own a car together. Right. So and they wanted a car to do stuff, and they were going to park it in the same parking lot so yeah. that I wouldn't have it when I needed it. And it, like, didn't even didn't even occur to me as a question. It was like, yeah, just take my car. And that's so, like, so, so far off from what the mm-hmm. relationship that my, my mom and my stepdad have. Right. And it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I don't think the relationship is necessarily healthy in, in some ways, but. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, healthy comes back to functional and getting, I mean, right, because we all have different definitions for healthy, especially with relationships where everyone's touchy about like what's codependence and like what isn't codependence. Some people might call that relationship codependence, but then again, some people might call power exchange relationships codependent. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) who are we? So many, yeah. I I just go back to that criteria of like functional, like is is it negatively impacting people involved in the relationship? Yeah. And ultimately, I think the people in the relationship are more important than the relationship itself. Yeah, that's true. But not all people agree with me. <laughs> but uh, I think we have—I think we have talked NVC to death. I'm good ending the session on NVC. There. How are you feeling? I'm good. Awesome. I'm hungry. <laughs> awesome. Well, maybe I'll get you some lunch, and then we can come back and chat some more if you feel up to it. Uh, sure. Awesome. So, how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on Facebook.com/slash/IntimateInteractions or directly on Patreon.com/slash/VictorSalmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com, so what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories, of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Tsawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.